no one expected much of the snake. No one expected it to do well, but this one developer had sort of accidentally stumbled into this very interesting macro strategy of just trying to stay as short as possible for as long as possible. And they took, it was like a $5,000 prize pool that they, they took home because of it. it was crazy. Wow. I can smell a Netflix special coming on with this. <laughs> it's, it sounds so dramatic, doesn't it? Big thanks to our partners, Linode Fastly and LaunchDarkly. We love Linode. They keep it fast and simple. Check them out at linode.com slash changelog. Our bandwidth is provided by Fastly. Learn more at fastly.com and get your feature flags powered by LaunchDarkly. Get a demo at launchdarkly.com. This episode is brought to you by our friends at O'Reilly. Many of you know O'Reilly for their animal tech books and their conferences, but you may not know they have an online learning platform as well. The platform has all their books, all their videos, and all their conference talks. Plus, you can learn by doing with live online training courses and virtual conferences, certification practice exams, and interactive sandboxes and scenarios to practice coding alongside what you're learning. They cover a ton of technology topics, machine learning, AI, programming languages, DevOps, data science, cloud, containers, security, and even soft skills like business management and presentation skills. You name it, it is all in there. If you need to keep your team or yourself up to speed on their tech skills, then check out O'Reilly's online learning platform. Learn more and keep your team skills sharp at O'Reilly.com slash changelog. Again, O'Reilly.com slash changelog. Let's do it. It's go time. Welcome to Go Time, your source for diverse discussions from around the Go community. Join 7,300 of your fellow Gophers and follow Go Time FM on Twitter. We post highlights from past episodes, links to interesting projects and repos, notifications for the live show, and of course, those oh so popular, unpopular opinion polls. Once again, we are at Go Time FM. Follow along. Okay, let's get into it. Here we go. Hello and welcome to Go Time. Today we are joined by Brad Van Vuut, the founder of Battlesnake. How are you, Brad? Hey, hey, John. I'm doing pretty good. Doing pretty Did good I get excited. the name right? You got it right. Yeah, a All lot right. of people don't. So full credit. We're also joined by Matt Ryer. Matt, it's been a while. How are you? Oh, it's great to be back. I'm good, thank you. How long has it been? I don't know, but I've definitely missed everyone. Thanks, yeah. Matt. Yeah. yeah. All right. In this episode, we're going to be talking about Battlesnake, game engines, and learning to code by building snake AIs, I guess. Um, yeah. So I guess yeah. let's just uh, kick this off easily. Brad, tell us what Battlesnake is. Yeah. So Battlesnake is a competitive programming game. And it, we kind of take a bunch of cues from esports and sort of like more video games and casual gaming. And so it's very much a community as well as a competitive programming environment you can sign up on the platform you can do a bunch of challenges on your own and try different sort of programming scenarios or you can join some of more of our competitive play in our leagues and our ranked play in tournaments and that sort of thing but it's all based on the game snake so everyone that's participating is a developer and they're building and writing and deploying effectively ais or in this case, just web servers that play the game on their behalf. And so all the games are fully automated and you can kick off games and see how well you do against various communities. Brilliant. See, this is an interesting... How fun does that sound? 
<laughs> it sounds fun. It's also like a weird, not weird, but it's definitely a new genre of games. Yeah. That I, it's it's definitely evolved recently because before that used to be like a crazy idea of like, let's have people program AIs for games. And now it's popping up a lot more often, I feel like. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. It's a lot of fun. I think that one of the things that we do differently, and it's not, there are other versions of this popping up as well, but like we take a very esports sort of style to it where we we do shoutcasting. We have live rankings. We have a weekly Twitch show called Snake Pit Live, which is like a sports center style. Like let's check in on who's entered the arena and who's knocked who out of first place and this kind of thing. And there's backstories and people are representing schools and nationalities. And so there's really sort of like, this sport angle to it that I think is, is, is really fun about what we're doing. Awesome. So going back to sort of what Battlesnake is, I've messed around with it a little bit. And as far as I can tell, you have several different modes, some of them ranging, like you said, challenges that are essentially just keep your snake alive or, you know, complete some little objective. And a lot of those, correct me if I'm wrong, but almost seem like they're ways to get people sort of familiar with the environment and how things work. Is that correct? Yeah, it's very much sort of like self-directed familiarity with the platform and the game. The core sort of Battlesnake experience kind of kicks off once you get into ranked play, once you join a ranked arena or you join one of our leagues or our tournaments. And that's where things kind of are like, that's where the real experience starts and the, the challenges are there to get you going and to get you familiar with the core concepts and how you control your snake in an interesting and unique way. So... Let's say I did want to get into this. Like, what does the setup look like for me as a developer if I'm getting into Battlesnake? Yeah, I think this is another thing that makes Battlesnake unique. You know, typically a strong Battlesnake developer is typically already a programmer to some extent. That You know, we're not necessarily teaching you to program. It's more taking people that know how to program a little bit and giving them sort of a venue to explore that on their own. So most Battlesnake developers have a little bit of programming under their belt. They're familiar with a sort of a common language. They've deployed some apps and they're kind of familiar with that process. And then the actual building of a Battlesnake, what you're doing is you're building or coding a web server to match an API. So it's kind of like a, a webhook API that we publish. And so you're, you're actually programming the server side of the relationship. And the game engine, which kind of runs centrally and is, is heavily concurrent, is constantly sending web requests to your Battlesnake, which is represented as this live web server that's somewhere. It's a URL that's reachable. And so that's kind of what you're wanting to bring to the table, right? Like if you know a little bit about how to deploy an app or you're looking to figure out how to deploy a web server and you you understand what a, sort of a basic HTTP API might look like, that's a really good starting place to start getting involved. And we can talk about where it goes from there, but that's the base level you want to be at. So does the game... A play out in real time, it's making live calls to your server. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's mm. interesting. So the game itself, I can talk about why, because I think it's interesting, but we actually put a timeout on the request. So you get a request from our game engine that says, you know, here's the current game state. You're in this game. Here's what the board looks like. What's your move? And all of your opponents are going to get the same request in real time as well. And you have a 500 millisecond window to get your response back to us and back to the game engine. And your response is, is really simple. It's up, down, left, or right. Just which direction do you want to move? And you have a 500 milliseconds to decide that. But it's all happening in real time. And so if you don't hit that window, then your snake will just move forward sort of at your own peril. Mm. If you're watching the game in real time, if the snakes that are, if the battle snakes that are in the game are very fast, then the game plays back really, really fast. 
And then we actually have to, <laughs> like part of what we do on the platform is we slow games down to make it much more uh, consumable to most people. So most of what you're seeing when you're interacting is actually replays, like buffered replays of, yeah, of, right. of pre-run games that ha- usually happen, you know, five or 10 minutes ago. Interesting. Yeah, because you could post your battle snake on the edge and really, yeah. really, really go fast. We have um, some of the top tier competitors like have figured out where we host the game engine out of just by just by spinning up servers in different data centers and different clouds. And so they've kind of <laughs> triangulated where, where we are. And so they've happened to co-locate their Battlesnakes right next to the game engine to give them like maximum compute time, right? That's what mm. they're doing. Yeah. <laughs> so theoretically, if somebody was fast enough, they could actually play with their keyboard. They just have to respond within a set time frame every time. So that's really interesting. We didn't always have the 500 millisecond timeout. We've been doing this, I can get into the history a little bit, but we've been doing this for over six years now. And it kind of started as like a live in-person developer hackathon where everyone would spend sort of the weekend building your Battlesnakes and then we'd run a big tournament at the end. Mm. The second year we did it, we had one team that built a whole UI. So they had like a, they were running their own client from their own server, they were websocketing the entire board state out, they were rendering it in JavaScript, and then accepting keyboard inputs and returning with like actually player controlled snake. At the time, the time it was five seconds instead of 500 milliseconds, so it was very mm. playable like that. And so we gave them credit. I think they took like second or third place in, in that tournament of like, great, if you got no, it. They still didn't win. They still didn't win, which is which is <laughs> ironic, but also speaks to like outsmarted by a robotic snake. Yeah. It's embarrassing. <laughs> it is. I, I agree. I agree. But you didn't hear that from me. Uh, Cheating and then still losing. It's just, <laughs> come on. At least I mean, win. they got second out of like 40 people. So that's not bad. Oh, that's pretty good. Yeah. That's pretty, pretty good. good. But they didn't get first. And so that's now we have variable timeouts. And so the default is sort of 500 milliseconds. But we also run game modes where you're only getting like 100 milliseconds or 200 milliseconds to kind of cut out opportunities for that sort of thing. Yeah. Oh, that's really cool. I noticed when I was looking at the game, it also seemed like you could potentially play multiple games at once. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think that's that's very much part of the platform and sort of as you explore and you start joining different ranked arenas and you start playing with different friends and people at your school, you learn that your Battlesnake can be in multiple games at any given time. And what we really like about this is it it mimics like real web development right? Like in order to be a competitive Battlesnake developer, you have to think about not only latency, which we talked about, but you have to think about concurrency, right? Of like, how can I be in multiple games at the same time and guarantee response times in all these different games so that I'm Mm. competitive? And so there's this really interesting natural progression of like, you start just by deploying a server that, you know, that just goes a loop or just goes up or something like that. And then you get into concepts like concurrency, you get into concepts like code optimization, you get into concepts like co-location and data centers and this kind of stuff. And so it gets really advanced in a really sort of like gentle way. That's so great. I imagine this would also open the door for sort of like having a state on the server, which you can technically have at times, where you can sort of remember in this game, this is the move I took and like here what I think are the next possible states for the board. So you could almost like preemptively start trying to compute potential next options. Yeah. Mm. Now, granted, with food being placed on a board, because for anybody who's played Snake, I'm assuming everybody has, but there's little food pieces that are placed on the board, and when you eat one, you grow a little bit longer, and they're placed randomly. So. And is that your score as well? 
I guess in most snake that's the score, but I don't know in battle snake if it's anything but just surviving. So this is a mechanic we added sort of early on to make it competitive. I mentioned we've been doing this for a number of years. The first time we held it, there was no score. Or sorry, there was no health. There's that whole health mechanic that we had to add, again, in response to players being creative. And so we learned that like, you could be a very competitive Battlesnake if you just went in the corner and hid. Like That, that was a valid strategy, and everyone else would have <laughs> eventually outgrow each other and, and run out of space. Mm-hmm. And so I think like a very competitive, this was the first year we did it, a very competitive strategy was just doing that. And so we implemented this health mechanic so you have a set amount of health and you lose one health for every turn. And so you have to eat on a, a minimum cadence in order to, mm. to survive and to stick around. And so we introduced that. And that's kind of what your score is. It's kind of like your length. The other interesting thing that we added with the health that's, that's kind of, again, our own take on the classic game is for resolving head-to-head collisions. So if you go head-to-head with another Battlesnake, if you're both the same size, then you both get eliminated but if you're longer, then the other player gets eliminated. And so this means there's this awesome trade-off between defensive and aggressive play. You can try to get food and try to gain length advantages and try to outmaneuver your opponent. But the trade-off there is you start to run out of space sooner. So you have to be a lot more strategic in, in how you're maneuvering in order to pull that off. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the randomness of the food is what sort of like you can pre-compute a whole bunch of states, and a lot of people do, and then you just have to throw away the bad ones after food spawns. Yeah, I was going to say that this technically could open up the doors to pre-computing a bunch of states, even when you don't have a web request in, just knowing you're in the middle of a game. And then when you get a response back, sort of deciding was one of those correct or not, and sort of moving from there, which could give you a huge advantage if you get things right, because then all of a sudden you could have a lot more pre-computed. But this, I mean, definitely is the... You've got to be at the high end of the AI, like building your AI spectrum, because this is not like an intro level, you know, it's not where you would start out, I don't think. Yeah. I mean, you start it with very simple strategies of like, try to not run into myself and try to maybe find some food. And then it kind of grows from there. But we have, just to talk about the API a little bit, so you're getting requests for every turn, but you're also getting a request for the start and end of every game. And so that exists so you can do resource allocation, you can do asynchronous process spin up or spin down. You can do storage if you want, or cross-request storage, or persistent storage. And we have developers that do all of that stuff. And some of them take it to really incredible <laughs> incredible levels of complexity and pre-computation. It's a really interesting, we think of it as solution space. But the solution space for what we're doing is very, very, very broad. Mm. And it just makes it, like, no one's doing the same thing. No one's doing the same thing. No one has the same strategy Hmm. everyone's has their own flavor and their own creativity that they're bringing to the table. And it makes the community really, really fun to be a part of. Mm. Is it difficult to get into if you want to start? Are we at the point like Call of Duty where the players on there now are just so good? It's almost no point even trying. How do you tackle that? So we're not there yet. And it's kind of an open question as to whether or not we get there. We have new players show up all the time and just start, dominating leaderboards because they're deploying strategies that either you know learning algorithms haven't seen before or they're learning a new way or they're using new strategy or oftentimes we have players show up with a hand we think of them as hand-coded snakes or hand-coded battle snakes that are employing strategies that the ais haven't seen or the ai players haven't seen yet a really good example of this is i'll tell a bit of a story 
So we ran Fall League last September, and we had a new Battlesnake developer come in. No one had ever met them before. Their username was Tofu. This is what they called themselves. And they picked this like mid beige like color, and their snake was like block blocks on both ends. They really played up the theme. Um, <laughs> but they just started destroying leaderboards like all over the place. Like they were just winning game after game after game, and they were knocking out top tier multi year Battlesnake developers. And we didn't know anything about this person. So we were like live casting games, we're on Twitch, we're talking about strategies, but we never actually, we have no idea what tech they're using and, and how they're going about this. Mm. And then we had one developer from the community study Tofu's games, like game after game after game, and they identified a very specific situation in which Tofu was vulnerable. And so <laughs> they programmed a Battlesnake to not like to at all costs, try to force this situation. And it was a situation where like Tofu would go against the wall in a way that was disadvantageous for itself. And then if you caught this scenario, then you could cut it off really, really quickly. Mm. Uh, and so this one developer uh, named Smallsco actually created Ballastnik specifically for taking out Tofu. And they could beat Tofu regularly with this strategy. Their Ballastnik was terrible at beating anyone else, but they could beat this one top tier competitor <laughs> semi-reliably because they had identified this weakness. Oh, that's so cool, isn't it? I imagine this is where Battlesnake starts to shine for experienced developers is, I mean, you talked about like people who have been playing this for a while. Are people actually taking like machine learning strategies and applying it to this? Is that what you mean by people who have like never seen a strategy before and they lose early on to it? Yeah, we're starting to see some AI and some reinforcement machine learning mm. strategies being deployed. I think what's interesting, they tend to not be hyper competitive, except in the in the in the tofu case. And I the, the reason I bring up that is because we don't actually know what tofu was doing. We never actually met them. They destroyed Fall League and then they retired. Um, mm-hmm. And I think you can still find their profile on the website. And they they changed their background to just be like, or their backstory to just be like officially retired as of this year. But we're starting to see more AIs or machine learning strategies pop up. But it's not really like the community that follows this isn't about. Mm-hmm being the the top tier competitor it's not about winning it's about using this as a venue to try different things so a lot of our developers are using this as a reason to get into reinforcement learning to start looking at things like tensorflow or even to learn new cloud platforms like if you're looking for a reason to try gcp or you're looking for a reason to try or to get into rust and see what it's like to program a web server in rust that's the primary use case that we're finding it's more about a really interesting feedback mechanism and a really interesting way to explore a new language or a new technology where you can see progression, right? Sort of on your own terms. Yeah, and I've noticed that, like, as far as the learning goes, you have a process that's relatively easy to jump into, at least for Go. I haven't looked at the other languages, but the Go process was literally you say you want to start building in Go and you have a REPL it, REPL.IT if anybody's never used it. Basically, it allows you to clone your project like you'd clone a GitHub repo, but it's cloned on this like self-contained development environment where you can literally just hit the run button and you have a URL to connect to your Battlesnake and you just paste it into the Battlesnake website and you have something running. Now, to be fair, it's a very bad AI. I think it chooses <laughs> its moves randomly, so yeah. it kills itself a lot. But basically you... Still better than a lot of AI. Well, yeah, <laughs> you've got something that it's at least running and you can verify like my code is connected to the server and it gets you past all of those initial hurdles which historically with programming and learning to code and getting into something, 
usually that's the biggest barrier is like just getting started. And then from there, like it's, it's an awesome starting point, which I've noticed like REPL it and like other things like that are, are awesome tools for getting people involved Yeah, and something that would otherwise take a lot of effort. Yeah. I think that's one of the, the ways that we're doing sort of shines, right? So like Replit is a partner of ours. They like, you know, they support what we do and we're fans of what they're doing. But also like we have tutorials if you want to use Heroku. We're working on a tutorial now if you want to use Railway. The AWS team, there's an open source Battlesnake that was made using AWS SageMaker by the AWS SageMaker team mm. that they built. And it's just to show off of like, hey, if you want to try this, here's a really interesting way to try it. And so what we're starting to see is the community is really giving back to us in that regard of like they're making tooling, they're making, we think of them as starter projects or like starting repos that have a lot of the sort of infrastructure in place. So you can just get to programming, you know, quicker, right? Which is kind of the Mm. crux of it. Yeah, I love that. I love the idea that AWS are using it. Imagine Google going to do it. Maybe it could end up being a good way to settle IP disputes. Yeah, hundred percent. That would yeah. yeah. Like, let's just take this to Battlesnake and we'll see let's what Battlesnake happens. Battlesnake it out. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> like, interesting. So I mentioned we run leagues. We ran a spring league earlier this year, hmm. and the AWS team actually entered the league as an official AWS team. I think it was a team out of the Vancouver office. They got thirty ninth. <laughs> they got thirty ninth out of like three hundred developers. Like they didn't even come in like top you know top twenty. But now they're fired up, right? And they're like, oh, okay, we can't, we can't stand for this. And so we have other companies. You can run it on Google Cloud yeah. Platform? Yeah, like maybe they should switch yeah. Cloud Platform. Pl- oh, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> but yeah, so now we have other large companies that are coming in and they're like, hey, can we submit, like our engineering team wants to play, right? Like what does this look like? Mm. And that just makes it more fun. Like it makes it fun for everyone else competing as well. Yeah, is it good for like a team building thing? Someone in the Slack channel, Go for Slack, uh, the Go Time FM channel, mentioned that they used it as a team building thing. So that I bet it is great for that, isn't it? Yeah, it's really fun, and we have some tools for that, and we help a couple. Like, it's not really our core, our core effort, but we have sort of larger engineering teams that have come in and been like, "Hey, can we run? You know, can we run one of these things?" And sometimes what we'll do is we'll run a little mini tournament for them and we'll sometimes we can put them on twitch if we're allowed which is really fun but sometimes we just run it privately for them as well and then what we'll try to do is get the winners from those to come back into the community and we'll get them on you know one of our shows or we'll get them on twitch or we'll get them into a tournament that we're running and kind of like part of this is making the developers feel like rock stars right it should feel really cool if you win one of these things it should be really cool if you develop this battle snake that is particularly good at destroying tofu. <laughs> we want you to feel like a hero in our community because of that, right? Yeah. I wonder if that Battlesnake that beat tofu was uh, funded by Big Beef. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. This episode is brought to you by our friends at LaunchDarkly. Feature management for the modern enterprise. Power testing in production at any scale. Here's how it works. 
LaunchDarkly enables development teams and operation teams to deploy code at any time, even if a feature isn't ready to release to users. Wrapping code with feature flags gives you the safety to test new features and infrastructure in your production environments without impacting the wrong end users. When you're ready to release more widely, update the flag status and the changes are made instantaneously by the real-time streaming architecture. Eliminate risk, deliver value, get started for free today at launchdarkly.com. Again, launchdarkly.com. When people are like getting into this learning process, I've noticed you have the challenges. Do you want to sort of expand a little bit on what those are and how they help people get started? Yeah. The challenges are kind of a new thing and they're kind of constantly evolving. You know, we see the challenges as sort of like a bridge to get you into competitive play because multiplayer play is where the strategies start to get really interesting. Like it's not terribly challenging or difficult to write an AI that can do well in the game snake all by yourself, right? Like it's after a bit of effort, you can get something that survives most of the time. And then you're just dealing with edge cases. And so the challenges exist as sort of like this bridge to like, okay, let's, let's talk about how you avoid yourself. Let's talk about how you get food. Let's talk about how you avoid walls. There's an interesting challenge where you can actually go up against yourself. And our goal there is again, to introduce the idea of concurrency, right? Mm. Like now here's a challenge where your server is actually playing two snakes on the same board and you're trying to outmaneuver yourself. But what does that do to your latency? What does that do to your processing power? Um, let's introduce you to that and then gradually bring you into more competitive multiplayer play. Mm. Oh, it's so it's genuinely getting me excited about doing this. I guess the next questions I'd have are like, like, this is a great way to learn. Like you said, learn new languages, try out deploying to new servers. Have you guys sort of thought about like, I guess more of like the pros and cons, like areas where this shines versus areas where this is maybe not the best learning tool. Like one of them you mentioned was if you're a beginner to programming in general, this is probably not the best fit because it's not going to teach you like a hello world server. You're kind of expected to have a little more experience in that. Are yeah. there other like use cases where it shines versus ones where it's not quite as great? I mean, there's some obvious ones. Like we don't do really well with front end, right? Like obviously there's no, there's no front end programming involved in doing this. And it has to be basically sort of web-based dev. But beyond that, like if you think of it as like web backend development, once you're in that area, basically anything goes. But I will sort of underscore that like, if you're looking to learn to program, there's lots of things out there that are really good at that. There's lots of things that have a gamified, that take a gamified approach to it. There's lots of people out there that want to teach you to program. That's not really what we're doing, right? Like what we're doing is you're a level one programmer, you're a junior intermediate programmer, and you're looking for a reason to, to try something new. You're looking for a venue to, to sort of program recreationally. And that's sort of our, our core. You know, we didn't set out on purpose to provide that. That's just, that tends to be the type of developers that want to play. Mm. And so we've learned to kind of lean into that. I've noticed this type of game is very, very good for like solidifying your reasoning and logic skills. Whereas one of the areas I've seen this type of thing not do that well are things like if you want to get into code structure and building like a really large scale application this doesn't necessarily teach you the skills to organize code and work with a team in that sense because yeah. a lot of the time, like you, like if you're trying a new strategy out, you might whip some code together real quick thinking, let's see how this goes, and I'm probably going to throw this code away because it doesn't work. Yeah. You and I were talking, though, at one point about one of the areas, um, it was before we got on air, about one of the areas that this could potentially go is sort of the testing realm. 
And this happened before we you know, recorded this. I was trying to make a Battlesnake myself, and I found myself really, really wanting to have a case where I could take a sort of a test game state and be like, all right, if I give this to my game, what does it do? Does it do what I want it to do? And, you know, it would be great to have some sort of way to, you know, give it a game state without having to, like, manually construct everything that would be in the JSON, you know, the whole request payload. And then to actually test your code and say, like, does this give me the response? And Brad, I believe you said that the community built some tools sort of like this. Yeah, I think of it as like your Battlesnake AI is very easily unit testable. Like it lends itself, like the inputs and the outputs are very well-defined, right? Of like, given this game state, if up is the only valid move, then I better return up 100% of the time. And so you can add the sort of unit test. I mentioned the idea of like, we found that Battlesnake development kind of follows this natural progression of web development as a whole. Like you start to think about latency, you start to think about performance and concurrency, but you also start to think about unit testing or specifically regression testing, because that's a really easy way to make sure that you're not harming your AI as you continue to develop. We have an endless backlog of things that we would like to do in this realm, but to touch on what you mentioned specifically, the community has done a phenomenal job. Like we have a Discord server, we have like open source GitHub repos, there's a large community that sort of follows this and participates. And they've started to give back tools to the community. So someone built, I think they called it a board generator, but basically, it's like a little UI where you can paint a board state onto the, like, you can add snakes and paint paint where their locations, and then you can export that as a faked JSON game request. And then you can say, like, okay, now import this as a test case that I want to hit against. We've also had someone built, like, a desktop app that actually lets you run games against a local snake. So one of the interesting things is because everything's live, in order to test changes, you have to deploy your snake, which can, like, it just dramatically draws out uh, iterations like iteration time but now there's tools where you can run cli games locally you can use this desktop it's called mojave if you're looking for it but you can run local games against your battlesnake locally and test out different scenarios and you can pause and rerun frames and this kind of thing so it's really interesting to see what the community is doing to kind of support this test driven development mm. that to me is like a really cool introduction to that test-driven development and learning the value of tests. Because like you said, with regression tests and some of that, it's tutorials are often hard because they either have to simplify things so much that they don't really help you in the long term. Yeah. Or it's such a complicated application that you really don't understand everything. Whereas this one's one where there's just enough complication that you really understand what's going on. But it's simple enough that you clearly see, like obviously if going this direction has caused me issues in the past. Like you mentioned the one case of like, if the only way to not die is to go up, then you want to go up. But there's also like other cases that aren't quite as, like they're not as clear cut in that specific moment, but you know you want tests for them. I guess example I can give is when I was making my snake, like when I was messing around with different strategies, one of the things you could easily do is like sort of make a U shape with your snake and then try to travel inside of it. So you essentially box yourself in. Yeah. And, you know, you don't necessarily die in that first move, but you know you will eventually die. So as you start to realize these cases, you can start to be like, I need a test case to make sure this doesn't happen anymore. And like the development process is really natural in that sense. It's like, okay, the first thing I want to do is just not die or not run off the board. The next thing I want to do is not starve to death. The next thing I want to do is, you know, not go into another snake. And then you slowly add these things and they can all be test cases that have like, what do I do in this particular case? And it's a really cool progression similar to the you know, natural development cycle. Yeah, and it's a really natural progression too. 
one of our team members, her name, her name is Aurora. And she, she always says like the first four steps of battle snake are like, first of all, like don't hit walls, don't hit yourself, don't hit other snakes. And then eventually try to find food. And those are kind of like, mm-hmm. if you watch someone build a battle snake for the first time, that's always the steps they take. And it's typically in that order as well. Mm. So we're looking, this is like the challenge is, is kind of like us leaning into that a bit more. We're starting to produce more content around how to achieve those first four steps. We've also thought about adding some more basic, some more base level code to the projects that we publish. You mentioned that like, I think the Go starter project just moves randomly, but we could start adding maybe some helper functions to do distance calculations or to do ASTAR pathfinding or, or this kind of thing. Mm not solve the problems for you, but give you some of the tools that you're probably going to want to use, right? Still let you apply them. Yeah, Mm. definitely. So another thing we've sort of talked about is I believe you mentioned that you have a CLI for running this locally. And if I recall correctly, that's written in Go. Yes. Which also means that essentially your entire game engine is written in Go then. Is that correct? Yes, it is. And most of it is open sourced. So if you go to our GitHub, and I think it's called the rules repo, but the entire game logic is implemented in Go and is open source so that anyone can see it. We get this a lot where people, you know, developers are eliminated in cases where they don't necessarily think it was fair or whatever. And so we're able to like point to source code that says, well, everyone's, you know, we're running this code. You can take a look at it and see exactly what's happening. And a lot of devs like to look at the source code to debug like order of operations in the game engine to figure out exactly when food consumption happens when does elimination detection happen so that they can program Mm. against these super tight edge cases (laughs) and with that again the community built a little cli tool for running games locally and so that's baked into that repo and that's all written in go we chose to write the game engine in go because that was something we were familiar with but i think it turned out to be a really phenomenal choice Mm. and the community has really leaned into it how was like as far as writing a game engine in go have you ever written one in another language or can you compare that to anything else I think that like this is so unique. It's so unique in that the entire game engine is web-based and web request-based. So typically, like if you're writing a game, well, writing a game engine is kind of its own thing. I've written like toy game engines, as most devs kind of do at some point in their career, using like Python or more scripting languages, or sometimes Lua-based. But I think this setup is pretty unique. We originally chose Go mostly for performance because if you look at like what's required of the engine, it's all very basic. Like, it, you know, I'm, I'm going to say some things that, that obviously lend themselves towards choosing Go specifically, but very basic structures, very basic communications, but super high concurrency and super high performance requirements. So you're looking at if we've got a game that's running, you know, an average game is going to have four different players in it and we're running, you know, 100, 200 games at any given time. That's a lot of processing power and a lot of synchronous I.O. to handle. Mm. So Go obviously makes that a lot simpler than it would be in other languages, for example. Mm. The original game engine was actually written in Python, like old Python G-event loops. It was just a real pain to figure out what was actually happening. Mm. That, so we rewrote it four years ago. Okay. So I guess my follow-up question to this would be, you said you needed this to be open source so people could look at it and actually see what's going on. Yeah. And as Go developers, we often claim that Go is easy to read and consume, and that's one of the perks of it. Has this generally been true, given that I'm assuming that a huge chunk of your audience and people playing the game don't actually write Go code? I think that's an interesting question. I've never received complaints that the engine has been written in Go. 
So I would tend to agree with that and be like, for most developers, they can probably understand what's going on. We've also gone to great lengths, obviously, to like document the open source stuff fairly well and kind of explain the, the high level blocks that are in play. But I think that the simplicity of the language, the simplicity of the implementation definitely lends itself to be readable by most developers, even if they're not, you know, Go developers specifically. So following up to this, the one thing I did notice was that because this is written in Go, I feel like Go developers have a slight advantage in the sense that they can <laughs> then take the game engine or the rule set, and if they're yeah. trying to actually like play out like what are the next possible 10 steps, like depending on what moves are, and like basically just doing a brute force sort of approach of play the next 10 steps and see which of my moves would be best. You can do this pretty easily. I say pretty easily. You can do it probably more easily in Go because you can actually import that code and you have a game engine running inside of your code and you can sort of work from there. Has that actually proven to be the case where like ones written in certain languages are more performant than others? I wouldn't necessarily say performant, but I would say like there's a clear advantage to being able to run the actual game logic within your AI, within your bot. Hmm. You mean while they're actually battling? Yeah. Yeah, so what you'll do is like you can simulate oh, yeah. future game states and then use the game engine in real time to mm. resolve those game states and to resolve <laughs> those moves. And so this is speaking of like natural Battlesnake progression, I think this is kind of a more advanced level, but we do see it a lot. And a lot of developers will start to implement early versions of game logic themselves into whatever language they're doing. But we also have, there's an ongoing project right now in the community to have the game engine cross-compile to WebAssembly. I don't know if that's a good idea or not, but that exists so that it would kind of maybe take down that barrier and allow anyone to start importing and running the, running the rules locally. I think there's obviously performance hits attached to that. And, you know, if you choose to write your, your Battlesnake in Go, then there's clear advantages because the game engine itself is in Go. Mm -hmm. But I don't necessarily know that that's a hurdle, right? It's just kind of, again, like part of, what we really like about this is if you get to this stage and you start thinking about, okay, how do I, the game engine is actually, or the rule engine is actually written as a Go, uh, an importable Go module. So you can just add it as a dependency to your app. Hmm. And so you can start to think about things like, okay, how do I add this as a dependency? How do I call it to the library? How do I measure the performance of it? And again, those are all real world software development scenarios and questions that a professional developer will regularly ask themselves. And so if you're willing to take a WebAssembly version or a cross-compiled version of this, like, what are the trade-offs, right? Like, we kind of want you to go through that. I think, again, that's what makes this compelling. I guess, yeah. I wonder if people have done things like fuzzing as well with, with that technique. Probably, right? Yep. Yeah. Um, An early strategy will just be to, like, select moves randomly, play out as many as you possibly can into the future, build a tree, prune the ones where you're losing, hmm. and then select the one where you survive the longest, right? Yeah, right. And that's kind of like, think of that as like an early look-ahead strategy. But you learn very quickly that like that takes a lot of compute because of the multiplayer nature of the game, because yeah. it's, everyone's moving on the same turn. So even looking one turn ahead, you need to run, you know, four times you know, four n different different states to look at that, um, and then that just explodes once you start to consider food, like random food um, spawn and that sort of thing. And of course, you don't know what other people, what other players are going to do, do you? Yeah, I imagine you could get into a point where you could assume everybody's playing optimally, but like that might also hurt your AI in the sense that 
not everybody is necessarily going to use your strategy and play optimally based on your strategy. So it could just be weird all around. So like you almost need to like put a bunch of weights into everything as to like, I don't really know what's going to happen. We have, again, very top tier players that adjust those weights based on their opponents as well. So like if they're going, if they recognize in the request, you get the name of your opponents and if if they recognize a name, they'll be like, well, I know that this player tends to like the safe defensive strategy would have them move this way, but I know that they tend to be more aggressive and a little bit more risky in their play. And so I'm going to wait accordingly and I'm going to, I'm going to take that into consideration. Yeah. And then that player can then counter, there's this counter play that kind of goes back and forth. Right. Mm. So the, like long term, the game gets closer to something like, I guess, like rock, paper, scissors, right? Where you can kind of counter moves. There's no AI that's going to win every game. That's not possible. I definitely noticed some of that when I was, so I first started setting up my AI. And one of the first things you almost always, I'm assuming most people do when you start looking at other snakes is if I move here and another snake moves here, well, you're like, well, we could, we could both potentially die depending on, you know, like you said, snake length and stuff. And at the time, I didn't even know about snake length, so I wasn't really sure what would happen. So I'm just like, let's just avoid this move altogether. Yeah. And I'm guessing most people do this. So early on, if you're thinking about it, you could probably safely go there knowing that most AIs are not going to take that chance. But like you said, there could be some snakes that you realize are super aggressive there and you're like, oh, I don't want to risk that right now. So there's definitely a lot of you know, factors that could go into that deciding what to do. Yeah. So we run in competitive play. There's a couple different tiers and ranks. So there's like bronze, silver, gold, and then platinum and elite. And elite is typically sort of like the top 16 players at any given time. We try to sort of keep that capped. But the silver and the gold play is really interesting because you start to see like the way you break out of those tiers is you start to realize that those trade-offs are being made by everybody and you start to realize that you can take advantages of those. So if I'm in a gold tier and I'm up against gold tier competitors, I know that you're probably going to shy away from head-to-head collisions because you haven't considered that. You haven't considered the future states in which you could win those. And so I can use that to be, you know, extra aggressive or I can use that to outmaneuver you in different situations. Mm. It's really interesting to watch like how gold play lends to platinum play, how lends to elite play. I assume those also like are a way of making the game accessible because Matt had asked earlier if this is like Call of Duty where essentially there's no point in starting. And I've noticed the games that do that tiered model, especially esports type games, like you might not notice it playing, but as a spectator, you can generally tell by watching the things that somebody does or like in this case, a Battlesnake does, which tier they're probably going to fall into. Yeah. Like my own personal experience is I played StarCraft for a while and I kind of learned that you could be really bad at managing units in a battle, but as long as you like got the macro production stuff right, you could get to a pretty high tier because it just didn't matter as long as you could keep fighting over and over again, like the other small things didn't matter as much. And I'm yeah. assuming in Battlesnake it ends up being similar where as long as your AI takes care of certain things, it'll eventually get out of certain tiers and this allows people to like start in the low tiers beginners and then gradually move their way up. Yeah, that's exactly it. And we use like most of the team is StarCraft players. We've all played StarCraft at some point. So we like I think StarCraft is a really apt analogy for that sort of progression. Right. And so like an example is for gold play, there's no look ahead. Most people are operating in a stateless fashion or not doesn't have to be stateful to be look ahead, but they're only computing on the current board state. And so you'll see, you know, general behavior optimizing for self-survival, right? Of like, how do I survive as long as possible in this situation? I'm just trying to avoid everything and not get myself into dangerous situations. 
And you start to see things like A-star pathfinding or flood fill and these kind of algorithms to detect the the self, you know, the traps, right? Like the self-trap scenarios that you pointed out. And then kind of as you break out of that, then you start to get into the higher tiers. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's what makes this super, super interesting. This episode is brought to you by Linode. Gone are the days when Amazon Web Services was the only cloud provider in town. Linode stands tall to offer cloud computing developers trust, easily deploy cloud compute, storage, and networking in seconds with a full-featured API, CLI, and cloud manager with a user-friendly interface. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing your enterprise's infrastructure, Linode has the pricing, scale, and support you need to launch and scale in the cloud. Get started with $100 in free credit at linode.com slash changelog. Again, linode.com slash changelog. Yeah, there's a great documentary about DeepMind doing the game Go. And they also, you can find it online, there are videos of it playing StarCraft. And they noticed in the, when they were watching it, that they would put them up against world-class players and they realized that the AI would make silly little mistakes, things which, if a player had made that mistake, you'd think, this person's not going to win now. They've made a a kind of schoolboy error. But then the AI goes on to win and it turns out it just sort of didn't matter. Turns out it doesn't matter. Yeah, Yeah, in the end. Does that happen in Battlesnake? Do the snakes act weird? Yeah, and I think I have a really interesting example of this. And these are hand-coded snakes, so I'll I'll add that these aren't necessarily machine learning or or reinforcement learning developed. But before COVID, we used to run in-person events, and it was really fun, and we had showcasters and DJs and stuff like that. The in-person 2019 championship, we had one competitor, and they were called Undefined Behavior. Their their battle snake was called Undefined Behavior, and they entered it into the, it was then called the Veteran, which was the top-tier division. And they actually had accidentally coded a strategy that actively avoided food. And this is the first time that we'd ever seen this. Mm -hmm. And so they started to like the casters are trying to cast this game and they're like, and you can watch it. It's all on Twitch. Like you could watch the VOD and you can have it in real time. And the casters don't know what to do with it because this top tier veteran Battlesnake developer is like, just looks like it's going to starve out. Like it's doing everything it can possibly do to not consume food. Mm. And then at the very last second, it would somehow make it out. It would somehow make it out of these situations. And so, like, we were all like, this is silly. Like, how is this snake? Like, why is this even playing in the veteran division? But then they just kept winning games Mm. repeatedly, like (laughs) winning games and defeating other people because they were just like their opponents would just get too long and they weren't able to maneuver. Mm. And they ended up taking first place. And the finals broadcast for that tournament is like one of the best battle snake moments we've ever had because no one expected much of the snake. No one expected it to do well, but this one developer had sort of accidentally stumbled into this very interesting macro strategy of just trying to stay as short as possible for as long as possible. And they took, it was like a $5,000 prize pool that they, they took home because of it. it was crazy. Wow. This is, I can smell a Netflix special coming on with this. <laughs> it's, it sounds so dramatic, doesn't it? It's like follow a year of like a top tier Battlesnake developer. It's like no, the, just the, the tofu documentary. Yeah, it's just the battle snake you follow. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. he's the star. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the tofu, no one knows who it is. I love it. I love it. Yeah. I love when you throw games into the mix with AI because 
we all have this like preconceived notion of like what is good play in certain games, and then we quickly realize that the things we cared about might not actually matter in the grand scheme of things. Good metaphor for life. It's, it's just hard to figure out like what you know what actually is the case and what isn't. Yeah. Because that StarCraft one you mentioned, Matt, I remember seeing that too, and it's always challenging to see because you'd wonder if pro players could actually learn from that type of thing, taking AI from games and watching them and deciding like, is my entire strategy based on the wrong? Like, am I you know, prioritizing things incorrectly? And we could see, you know, sort of what goes from there. Now, granted, there might also be the case where an AI might be able to click or do something that's inhuman. So, no, they actually always, uh, made sure that this couldn't in the StarCraft case with DeepMind. They they made sure it could only see what the other player can see, and it could only interact. I think at a slower rate, like one click a second, something even slowed it down. Oh, really? Like it was artificially? Yeah. I know the click rate's always weird because if you've ever watched a pro player play, they click. A million times without doing anything. Yeah, I feel sort of like. keeping warm, agile, aren't they? Yeah. It, it, it's, and like I'm like, how, what does this actually translate into? Like, like, what is their actual click rate of like useful moves and like actions? Actions per minute versus clicks yeah, per minute. Like, like, what is the actual useful number? And like, does that actually matter? I'd be curious to see if you could take AIs and just bring that as low as possible to see like, does this make a difference in pro play or not? Like that's the type of thing it'd be really fun to do with DeepMind if you were, you know, yeah. if you had the opportunity to. Yeah, yeah. I think there's an interesting component of this. So looking back to like DeepMind playing StarCraft or even like OpenAI playing Dota, right? Like they were doing a very similar sort of show match there. It's really inaccessible for most people to watch those things and understand what is str- like unless you're like at this intersection of, you know, understanding how AI works and then also understanding how StarCraft II works mechanically at a very high level, it's really hard to appreciate and understand what's going on. And one of the things where we kind of, again, we didn't set out to do this, but like Snake itself, it's hyper accessible because the mechanics are so simple, right? Like you're just moving up, down, left, or right. And so we can start to watch these things unfold. Like we can watch this unconventional strategy completely disrupt these you know, highly developed AIs and everyone in the audience understands why, right? Versus just like, we don't have to go debug and debrief and figure out like, it's not like the pro StarCraft 2 player like watching the replay and trying to figure out where the advantages came. Yeah. We all see it. We yeah. all see it happen in real time. Right. And we understand where the deficiencies were. Yeah, that's a really good point. Snake is like, we didn't even like describe the Snake game. Yeah. Because I think we all just assumed everybody's played it before <laughs> because yeah. it's been on every device like, I think every early cell phone had Snake and it, well, maybe not everyone, but a lot of them did. But there was calculators and everything else that had Snake mm. that I can think of. Yeah. We think of it as like, it's universally recognizable, right? Which is kind of, again, we did it because it was fun, but it turned out to be like this really interesting aspect of it. I mentioned we used to do live in-person events and show matches and tournaments. And like those events, like they drew a crowd. Like we had people in the community who were not programmers and just wanted to come out and watch because it was really fun to watch and you could see what was going on versus again, like a StarCraft II esports, right? Like most people who are watching that are either StarCraft fans or StarCraft players. There's a really interesting non-programmer based audience for for what we're doing. Mm. Yeah, I could see that. If I wasn't a programmer, I'd watch it. <laughs> yeah, I've seen some other games like it. I'm really interested in the space of programming AIs for games because I've seen some other companies that do the whole, it's essentially meant to teach you programming and it goes, it's kind of hit or miss sometimes. I feel like sometimes there's some big leaps that are hard, but there's even some games around that. Isn't there like a, what, something billion humans or something like that? 
I know what you mean. I'll find it. Or even like things like Slither or Generals was the other one where like it was kind of it started out as like a human played game, but at the end of the day, everyone was writing bots for it. Like that's just that's just how it ran. Or you can also look at things like Screeps is a really interesting example, which is like a full Steam based game where I think you upload your JavaScript and they run it for you and it's all fully autonomous, but it's more of like an open world. Mm. Yeah, I think there's a lot of really interesting things cropping up in this space. Yeah, seven billion humans was that game. It's not quite the same okay. thing, but it is. It's it's a it's it like gets you used to those concepts of programming. Yeah, it's it, not the same as programming, right. but it's yeah. like an awesome introduction for like the way I described it was like if I wanted to get my nephews into programming mm. without like telling them that's what they're doing. Right, I'd be like, go play this game, and <laughs> yeah. then afterwards yeah. you'd be like, you're basically programming. Yeah, you really are. You literally have if statements and things where you give logic into a little character, and they've got to find their way home. And there's not seven billion of them, so the title's a little bit misleading there. I only counted six point four billion <laughs> when I counted them. Um, but yeah, that game was even interesting in the sense that it uh. Like, didn't it even tell you if you had, like, the shortest code possible or the fastest code possible? Yeah. Like, yeah. it did some programming-esque type things that programmers, for whatever reason, care about these things. Yeah. Yeah. Some of them make sense, like latency or, like, speed can matter, but, like, whether your code's the shortest code possible is something that, hmm. weirdly, programmers like to check. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that 7 billion humans... Was there, like, score and, like, experience attached to that? Like. Yeah, so, like, they it, once you'd finish a level, it would, like, show you, like... Whether, if I recall correctly, it would sort of show you like you were this close to sort of the fastest solution or like this close to the shortest solution. And sometimes those weren't the same and sometimes they could be the same. Right. So right, right. You'd, you'd like, it sort of forced you to go back and try it different ways and sort of see what's possible. Yeah, it's really cool. It's really fun. I mean, that's for people who aren't programmers. Anyone could, can play that uh, within reason. Yeah, it's definitely, anybody can play that game. It's yeah. gradually introduces you. As a programmer, you still play, like I've still played it some and yeah. found it interesting, but it was hard for me to sit down and just play the whole game through as I'd put it because it sometimes did feel like programming, like because it was so relatable. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's how you program in your real life. You've got an IDE that's just little blocks you move around, isn't it? It's adorable. Yeah. That's, well, no, yeah everyone at Google is just doing that. It's yeah. yeah like it's the next search block. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah the data oh, blocks. boy. All right. We're running near the end of the episode, Brad. So we're going to move over to your unpopular opinion. So tell us, what is your unpopular opinion? So I don't know how unpopular this is, but I've started a couple different companies. Or I've co-founded a couple different companies. Battlesnake is the one that I'm sort of currently operating. It's the one I love the most, absolutely. But as I built teams and tech teams and engineering teams, I've become a really big fan of non-negotiable job offers, especially at early stage. It's like I've hired a lot of developers over my career, and it just feels way better for both sides of the relationship when job offers are made sort of open and transparent and everyone's kind of putting their chips on the table right away of like i don't want to play this game of negotiating benefits or negotiating salary and oftentimes developers don't want to do that either right or it doesn't have to be developers but early stage tech hires don't want to do that either so i'm a firm believer that you know those job offers should be non-negotiable because it just builds so much trust on both sides. 
I can talk about that further, but that's 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 where I want to start. Well, I mean, it tends to be like if you have negotiable job offers, it tends to favor those that understand that they can negotiate or those that have that's what I was going to say, yeah, the social skills to do so. And not everyone does. And I think that's like that's a really garbage situation to learn that someone, you know, with the same job title as you received a higher comp package just because they asked for it and you didn't. Right. Like, what does that say about the team and the, and the company at a high level? We don't think about it that much, but I could imagine this also affecting people's salaries based on their backgrounds. For instance, somebody who has their parents paying for their college and can afford to turn down a job offer or try to negotiate you know, with those risks involved right. versus somebody who's like, I just graduated with $100,000 in debt. I can't take the risk of upsetting them by asking for more money, or that might be what's going through their head. I think in practice, job offers are probably rarely rescinded for trying to negotiate but there's always that risk, and that could potentially mean that people who are already coming into the work environment with a like slight handicap by not having parents who can pay for their score or their school, I say slight, right. that's a pretty big handicap. But if you're coming in with that handicap, it just sort of further amplifies it. Yeah. yeah, and I suppose also, like I know from hiring myself that on average, like women, female candidates would ask for about 10% less than men would for whatever reason and i suppose it helps like that by the way when that happened i would tell them because i'm a feminist hero but yeah. uh, i suppose it helps there does it yeah absolutely like i think of it as like if you're doing non-negotiable job offers you should be giving your best offer up front right you know what i mean like it's not you shouldn't be using non-negotiable job offers as a money saving tactic i think that's kind of <laughs> the wrong way to do it but you should be giving everyone the best offer that you can mm. regardless of their background of their experience level if they're underrepresented minorities or, or, or whatever, mm. everyone gets your best offer. And what I also think is interesting is it, it really puts the onus on the hiring team to perform well and to make sure that like we're getting great people through and that we're getting a diverse pipeline and everyone's going to get, you know, if you can decide on what the comp package is before hiring, then it takes that entirely out of the process, right? Mm -hmm. um, we know what this role is. We know what we're going to pay them. And now we need to find someone who matches that and is looking for that versus like we're just looking for anyone and we'll pay them the minimum amount they're willing to agree to, right? Which is, yeah, right. Which is a, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I guess it would also eliminate that whole like, if we can get this person at this rate, it's a yes. But otherwise it's an, like it kind of gets rid of that whole in-between yeah. type state of trying to decide is it worth it or not. And like I do like what you said about figuring out the role and what it's worth to you ahead of time. I think that'd be the hard part with the non-negotiable offers is that there's a lot of orgs that, like a Google, for example, when one of those companies are hiring, they aren't hiring for a specific role. So it's a really right. weird situation. It's not like you go in saying, I'm hiring for you know, sales lead at this specific project. But if they were forced to come up with actual salary ranges up front and, and have non-negotiable offers, I feel like that would be more useful in that sense because you'd know what you were going in for yeah yeah and along those lines if you're doing this you never have to ask like there's always that question of like what are your salary expectations or what did you make in your last you know what i mean or like employers will always find sneaky ways to ask that question of what you were paid in your current or your previous role and you always have to like train you know interviewees to, to navigate that question and be ready for it and this takes that question entirely out of the process right this is what the package is I'm telling you right now, it's our best offer. We think that you fit that. 
and either, you know, it's something that you're willing to accept or not, but there's no conversation of like, well, is it a bump over what you used to make? Is it, you know, can we get less because you were, you were undervalued previously? Mm. It takes that off the table as well. Has it ever backfired? Have you ever regretted it? Have you ever lost somebody that yeah. you wish you hadn't? Yeah, totally. Like we've lost, and when I say we, you know, in previous companies, but I've had uh, strong candidates turn down offers and I've learned to be very upfront with that early on in the process. Like if we, you know, if you interview someone and you think it's a fit, have that compensation conversation very early with them to make sure that no one's wasting anyone's time on either side. Mm. And if that doesn't align, then move on. A stronger example of, I wouldn't say backfiring because I think that's too tough language, but Mm. there was a position that I was hiring for and we had decided upfront what the comp package was going to be. And we just, you know, we lost three or four really great candidates who decided that it wasn't for them. Mm -hmm. And what we ended up doing is we had to increase the comp package. But what that came with is we actually also increased comp packages of the existing team as well Mm. to match, right? Of like, okay, you know, you're all at this role, you're all at this level. We can't hire great people on your current comp package at this level. So clearly something's wrong. Mm -hmm. So let's bring everyone up to a level that we can actually hire great people at and assume that. You know, we don't want to punish existing team members because they they chose a lower salary two years earlier, mm. right? right? And the market's changed. Yeah, or well, they joined earlier. And, yeah, and exactly. Punished. Which should be rewarded. Right, yeah. yeah, it's the opposite way around. Yeah, very interesting. I wonder if that's going to be unpopular or not. I don't know. We will test this on our Twitter account at GoTimeFM. We'll ask the people. We'll find out what they think. Very interesting, though. It's a weird one for me because I don't know where I stand on it fully. <laughs> like I've seen some companies that the one that comes to mind is a not a GitLab had they were remote for the longest time and they had I think it was basically like specific price bands that I don't know if it was exactly this but they did something where like your location was affecting your salary and some other stuff that I didn't fully right. agree with and it essentially came down to the point that I could never work there because I would never get a an offer competitive to like what I currently had and what I could currently get. So to me, I've looked at it as I was like, well, you've basically just eliminated a huge set of potential candidates because what you're doing isn't competitive for the ones who, you know, at least have other offers. So in some ways, it kind of felt like they were taking advantage of the people who wanted some of the perks they offered, but couldn't get that offer somewhere else. Right. Now, the fact that you said that you try to share this up front or early on in the process, that helps a lot. In my mind, like if the salary is transparent, non-negotiable, and you know for the role, it's nice. I think most people agree that seeing salary ranges up front is awesome for employers or for employees, but that's a, a rarity, I think. Yeah. There's a couple different takes on it, right? Like you can use non-negotiable salaries to save money. Like it can be used for sort of the wrong reasons or used, I don't want to say used for evil, but like, you know what I mean? The motivations can be less than altruistic. And I'm not suggesting that, that in the, you know, in GitLab that was, that was necessarily the case. But you can use it to be like, well, we're going to actively underpay people and we're just going to build a team around people that don't realize they're being undervalued, which can be a side effect if you're doing it wrong, right? And another counterpoint is most people these days are, are trained to negotiate or taught to negotiate or told to negotiate. And so they're, they're ready for that process. And when you say like, you know, on face value, you say, we don't negotiate salaries, sorry, you know, that can come off a bit weird and that can be, you have to add the part of like, and we give really good offers and we try to be really competitive in the market and we make sure that everyone is at the same level. Like you have to add those additional points. Otherwise it gets, it gets dangerous, right? I could definitely see it being, 
it's almost like you go to a used car lot and they're like, we don't negotiate prices. Like these are the best price we can offer. But then you find out later that like if you're trading in a car, they'll negotiate that price though. So it's like you do right. technically negotiate prices, then you just right. do it in a different way. So yeah, some people will not like they won't negotiate cash, but they'll negotiate options or they'll negotiate vacation time. Like you can't have some of it. You got it. You got to be all in. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that would be a huge thing is that you have to like commit to this is what's fair and we're going to be upfront and honest. Otherwise, it would be very frustrating as an employee down the road. What I like about it is that it really does help those that aren't confident going into doing negotiations. And honestly, like that isn't part of our job, really. So in a way, you know, it shouldn't be a requirement of getting well compensated. I happen to be all right. Watch this. John, can I have $2,000, please? Can I? No, Matt. You cannot. It doesn't always work. Not for me. No. no. Where do I I wire it? Just let me know. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It it worked on me. You're good. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. I'd love to see your interview process. Do you go in and say like, right, have a game of Snake on a whiteboard? (laughs) What's the best movie of 20 minutes? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How far, how, and yeah, how far, how do you do look ahead in real time? Yeah, it's actually good questions, to be fair. I mean, we're, we're, we're a small team. We're only three full-time people. I think we're going to go to four full-time people in, in a little bit. But we're, we're very, very small doing this. And we're very lucky and very fortunate to be able to do it. Hmm. And we're supported by some really good partners that let us do that. So we haven't had to do strong interviewing yet, but I think that's an interesting like there's an interesting advantage here where our community, our users are all developers and they're yeah. all very familiar with it. Yeah. And they've seen the rules they played around with. You know what I mean? They're very familiar coming in. And so I'd like to think we could hire from the community pretty well. Yeah. I find that to be one of the greatest things about open source is the people you meet doing it. And I do often recommend to young developers or new people that are new to development to get into some open source project if you can in some way the opportunities are amazing and you're right if you're looking for somebody to hire if you've already been working with them for a while yeah it becomes a very easy decision to make brilliant is a new developer getting into any company that has developer facing like tech tech tools of any sort is my suggestion like one of the suggestions i've given is to try to use those tools like as an example back when stripe was earlier on if you wanted to get involved with stripe you might have used their api clients and basically provided feedback of like, this was my experience. Here are the things that did well or didn't do well. And I think if you get into an interview process, that's going to make yourself a lot more attractive rather than somebody who's like, oh, I've never even touched your API, but I want to work there. Right. And it's like, that's kind of a hard thing to believe right now. <laughs> now, granted, that also means you have to have the time to do it, which is unfortunate. But I, I think that's better than the whole blanket, send your resume to 100 people versus like send it to like four or five that you give yourself the best chances possible with them. Hmm. I think it's worth considering. I think those are functions of scale, right? Like if you're early Stripe and you have to move fast and you have to move quick, then there's clear advantages to bringing on someone who knows what they're doing. But if you're, you know, current present day Stripe, you know, A, your hiring requirements are super high, right? Like obviously. Um, But also you want to make sure that you're bringing in a very broad spectrum of experiences and, and technologies because you're just operating at such scale. So I think I think that changes over time, and I think that's okay for that to sort of shift over the lifetime of a company or an engineering team specifically. I was more viewing it as like the individual applying perspective. Right. I've seen right. some people that just literally blanket their they blanket send a resume to every company they can, and then they wonder why they don't hear back. And it's like I would rather sit down and spend a week of like here are the five companies I'm applying to this week. 
How do right. I make myself have the best chances possible? But that's just, I guess, my perspective. It's I haven't done the whole new junior developer trying to get a job thing. Like I only got had to do that once and I got lucky. So <laughs> it's hard to give advice on that front. Another good Netflix show, dress John up like Maybe. a schoolboy with a little cap on and that, little shorts. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure cap what you're imagining. <laughs> Undercover junior? Yes, exactly. It's the other way around. <laughs> I've got like a schoolboy uniform and, and I'm going to job interviews and I'm just wondering where I'm a little catapult, working. little catapult that you've got walking around, uh, you know, chewing gum. Right. I mean, Perfect. come on, it writes itself. I would watch it. I would I'd watch, watch it. it twice. Yeah. yeah. All right. Brad, thank you for joining us. It's uh, great to have you and great to hear about Battlesnake. Anybody who wants to check it out, it's at what, battlesnake.com. Is that correct? Yeah, it's play.battlesnake.com. We're just opening up our summer league. So it's our summer competitive league. Pre-registration just opened up yesterday. So if you want to get involved, you've got a few weeks to get your snake ready. And then competitive play for the summer league will start in June. Brilliant. I'm going to be watching this. Awesome. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for listening to this episode of GoTime. If this is your first time with us, subscribe now at gotime.fm or in your favorite podcast app, just search for GoTime, you'll find us. And if you enjoy the show, please send it to a friend or a colleague who might also enjoy it. We truly appreciate it. GoTime is produced by Jared Santo with music by Breakmaster Cylinder. We're brought to you by Fastly, LaunchDarkly, and Linode. Next time on GoTime, Matt and Natalie broadcast live from GopherCon EU. That episode will be ready to put in your ear holes next week. <laughs>